from Brooklyn, New York. I'm Adam Teeter, and this is a Vine Bear Podcast Conversation. We're bringing you these conversations between our regular podcast episodes in order to examine how we move forward as a drinks business following the COVID-19 crisis. Today, I'm talking with Jeff Kozak, CEO of Whistle Pig Rye. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks, Adam. So before we jump into everything that you have been up to and are planning uh, for the future since you know all this craziness, quarantining, et cetera, went down, um, I, I think it'd be it's probably pretty crazy for most people to not be familiar with Whistle Pig Rye, but there there may be some people out there. So can you just tell us a little bit about uh, what Whistle Pig is? Um, you know what what this crazy experiment or what was a crazy experiment has turned into this amazing brand based in Vermont, <laughs> um, and sort of what you guys stand for. Sure. Um, hey, Whistle Pig's been around for about 10 years now. Um, we're based out of a little town in Vermont, which is arguably the best place to be, you know, during this uh, pandemic. Yeah. We've been making rye whiskey, um, bottling uh, here on the farm, distilling, still remain doing that. And, um, you know, again, I think we're probably regarded as, as one of the uh, finest, I guess, rye whiskeys, most awarded. We have um, various... Um, SKUs that it range from six years old all the way up to 18 year old. Uh, you know, we've always been kind of regarded as some of the bartenders, uh, you know, favorite little stash. And uh, obviously with COVID and on-premise shutting down, it kind of caused some heart palpitations here on the farm as far as, you know, what that new world would look like. But, um, you know, I think it's been interesting times. And when you work uh, for a small company and, and you can be nimble and quick, I think, uh, you know, the, the rewards, I guess, can be, uh, can be great. So, um, you know, I think it's been a great, well, not a great, but an interesting social experiment on, on how to, you know, how to run a small business in, in times of COVID. And, and um, you know, if you're nimble, you know, what can come of it? So, uh, so have you, you brought up, um, you know, on-premise. So has Whistlepig always been more of an on-premise brand or do you, do you see yourselves as being sort of, 50 50 like how has that always because i know that you obviously built the brand through the the bartenders i think that was the first way that i ever had whistle pig yeah but now you know i'm lucky to say that i have some bottles on my bar so i'm I'm curious yeah it's always been was always through the bartenders and, and remains so so our 10 year old which is you know our most widely available you know we always had an over um over index split to on-premise right and, okay um, and, and that's, again, you know, when we when we saw COVID hit, you know, that was the first brand, uh, you know, that, that was actually impacted because, um, you know, we just stopped selling almost immediately, right? And, um, you know, some of the other SKUs that we sell, the 12 or 15, which are more heavily, um, you know, in the retail setting, will those actually continue to expand, right, or actually grow through this process? But uh, the 10 definitely hit a, hit a roadblock right off the bat. Interesting. And so what have you done uh, since to to adapt to that? Um, and you know, how did you sort of reconfigure what you all were doing in order to, you know, try to maintain as, as many sales as you could? I mean, I, I think it was an interesting time because, um, you know, right, um, right when COVID hit, we generally were gearing up to launch uh, a new version of Farmstock. And so Farmstock was always the uh, whiskey that we had, um, you know, produced here on the farm, and it generally had increasing amounts of grain um, that we had grown ourselves, aged ourselves, and um, you know, mixed or blended with other aged uh, aged whiskeys that we had sourced. And so each year, we would add more of our own farm production to this to this blend. And so we were on farm stock four. Um, COVID hit, and we realized that the way we used to do it by bringing either bartenders or media to the farm and kind of 
you know, crowdsourcing the blend just wasn't going to happen. Right. And um, we pivoted really hard and, and we worked with a, a e-commerce partner called Flaviar, which has, I think, 50,000 uh, people that uh, receive some of their kits online. And we decided to send out uh, a couple different whiskeys, um, a wheat whiskey, a barley whiskey and a rye whiskey and asked them to blend it at home. So uh, instead of using our crowdsourcing methods or our own panel that we usually use in the distillery, we kind of turned to the masses and did this very virtually, you know, I guess, you know, now becomes virtually accepted, right? Everybody's right. doing virtual things, but nobody had virtually blended a whiskey online. And, um, you know, we ended up getting, you know, a blend that I guess the, these 100 consumers had chosen and it, uh, it played out well because, again, you know, people do have refined palates, especially people that are avid consumers and you know we ended up creating this blend that was more dominated in rye um, a little bit less wheat and barley but was well received and everybody enjoyed the experiment and um, you know I think it was a great a great four-week sprint right to get out something new um, and keep the story of, of farm stock now now dubbed home stock alive so to be clear just so I understand what happened so you sent out so a hundred people who are associated with this uh, this whiskey club, received three different whiskeys then they they blended it but then everyone voted on the blend they liked the best yeah it was actually a thousand yeah, it was a thousand people okay we had three blends that were you know um, basically online came in as the winners and then we did it online uh, via zoom again right uh, you know as everybody uses zoom and uh, selected that final blend from those three for, um, you know most uh, i guess highly regarded blends so people basically were like, were they posting their yep. their recipe for their blend first? Like, hey, this is what I did. I used sixty yeah. percent rye, thirty, and then basically someone else tried it, and so they had enough whiskey at home themselves they could keep trying the different blends. Yeah, I mean, when you're only adding, you could probably do about three different blends from the kits that were sent out. So they had three, you know, three cuts at the cap to do it, I guess, so to speak. Okay, interesting. And then, um, and did people who who did this were they people that are were avid fans of the brand prior? Did they pay in to do this? Were they? Yeah, they were free kits. It was a really interesting again way to do it. Where again, if you signed up for this, uh, you know, sponsorship, or if you signed up for their membership, right, that you received the kit. So again, you know, I think people were really interested in doing it. I don't think it was only Whistlepig fans. I think it was just broader base general whiskey consumers and i think that's why it came out so um i mean the blend was great just because again you had a wide range of different tastes and interests and the palettes were all different so you know again i I think about it you know when we do panels on the farm or with our lab you maybe have five palettes that are highly refined now we had a thousand different people with uh again different palettes but the eventually the blend came out and it was uh you know i would say what what i would have expected you know um and would have been, you know, equally as consistent as what would have come out if our panel had had done it on the farm. Well, so now that you did it this way, would you do it this way again? <laughs> I don't know. It's open like Pandora's box, right? I mean, marketing loved it. Our operations people think it's ridiculous, right? I mean, it, it, but, <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, I don't know. It, it, I think obviously Zoom and, and virtual is now to here to stay. So again, I, I could see us maybe trying this again in a smaller version, but, but you realize that there's a lot of consumers that want to be part of this. You know, they, you know, a lot of people that, that love whiskey or drink whiskey would love to work in a distillery be part of that quality team or be part of the blending. Um, so again, I think it's just, again, it's just interesting if you can get your consumers or expose new consumers to your brand 
through some of these, you know, some of these things that we would have never, ever tried before if COVID wouldn't happen. Right. And like you guys pretty mobilized that pretty quickly too. So you already knew, I, I would assume you had a pre-existing relationship with uh, the, the club and then you were able to just kind of push through that immediately. Is that kind of... Yeah, we had an existing relationship with uh, this company called Flavia Caskers. And so that was the first step. But to be honest, I mean, it took a took a lot of work just to get it done in like four weeks, um, you know, to get to the thousand kits out to these people. So that's really interesting. And so now you can buy this blend. Yes. Is it just online or? No, and you could buy it through, you know, uh, your favorite retailers. So again, you know, we shipped it nationwide. Uh, Again, I think a lot of interest, you know, in it because again, there's not, you know, there hasn't been a lot of brands that have done or tried to attempt something like this. So yeah, you can buy it in most uh, retail settings. That's very cool. Um, so in addition to that, so let's sort of starting to think about, obviously we talked a little bit about what you did in the past over the past few months, but what are you thinking about now in terms of moving forward? Is, is Vermont close to reopening? Um, have you thought about what it looks like to, you know, fully reopen the farm? Um, pardon my ignorance, but I don't know. Do you, do you accept tourists often to the farm? How much of that is part of your business? Um, and how much have you thought about that as well as we start to move forward? Yeah, I mean, our, our our farm is not actually open to the public. So Vermont okay. um, is, you know, very small and, and protective. So we, um, you know, are only open to private guests. But we do do a lot of, um, you know, individual meetings or visits to the farm uh, from barrel buyers. So, again, you know, we're, we're thinking about best practice as far as how do we open it up. Is it, you know, it acts almost like a bed and breakfast and, um, you know, that's, you know, we're basically following best suit or best practices as more hotels open up. And, you know, we expect we'll be receiving guests, you know, closer to the fall time. Because, um, again, Vermont's remote. It's hard to get here, you know. Um, and so we've got to be cognizant that, you know, most people don't want to go anywhere unless they're able to drive or, you know, within a single single flight. Right. How are you starting to approach some of the retailers that are opening up? Have you begun to have conversations again with them and by retailers, sorry, I mean the on-premise, so uh, bars and restaurants. I know, obviously, New York is still closed. We may move to phase one in the next month, you know, week or two. Um, but some states, especially uh, in the South, Midwest, et cetera, are are opening and opening more fully. Were those places where you were pretty active as a brand? And if you were, have you started to, you know, re-engage sales teams and things like that in those locations? Yeah, I mean, we, we were we obviously, like we said, that Whistlepig was built on-premise, so we were always you know, again, wanting to get back uh, there as quickly as possible. And a lot of our salespeople came from the bartending community. Uh, so again, you know, the as trends started to emerge, like we saw obviously cocktails to go, one of the fun things we did is uh, we make a, a barrel-aged maple syrup. So we take maple syrup that we actually, um, you know, basically produce here on our farm and we age it in, in whiskey barrels, right? Um, and we end up using that as a modifier in a lot of our cocktails. When cocktails to go started to happen, we ended up sending out uh, a quarter filled 375s of maple syrup to accounts in Texas and other markets so that, you know, basically accounts there could then add, you know, whistlepig piggyback or 10 year and the other uh, ingredients and get it out to the consumer. So that was, again, like just trying to be nimble and trying to be innovative as cocktails to go became a real thing. And then we realized that the vessels or the modifiers, if we could provide that to them we might have the ability to still be in front of our consumers and you know, help our accounts in a way that makes it easier for them to satisfy that demand. That's very interesting. So yeah, out of that, especially with the cocktails to go, I had a conversation uh, last week with a, a, a brand that 
as well as is I think by a lot of consumers thought of as a brand you drink, you know, on its own. Um, so this was with the Macallan. And I know a lot of our readers, um, I think who are very well aware of Whistlepig, think of Whistlepig as a, you know, a brand in which they drink straight, right? Maybe with an ice cube, et cetera, but that it's, it's about the whiskey. Um, and they don't think of it as much being put in cocktails. First of all, do you, do you think that that's an incorrect uh, you know, attitude that people have, like has whistle pig to you always been a whiskey you would also use in cocktails. And if that, if it hasn't, um, have you adapted because of so many cocktail to go programs, especially to, you know, pushing for the, the liquid to be used more in cocktails. I mean, when whistle pig started, it started off as, you know, hundred percent rye, 10 years and a hundred proof. And so the hundred proof was really to improve the base, you know, of cocktails. Um, Obviously, at that price point, you can't get on that many cocktail lists or cocktails become prohibitive at 18 to $20. So, you know, in the last year, we released a, you know, a, a younger version, which was a six year, and we called it piggyback. And so that, you know, again, we we acknowledge that there, you know, people still need a good base, a good rye that's high proof. And that was our response. Um, and, and that's what we've been using or promoting as people have, have moved into, you know, cocktails to go or trying to at least offer that out. And, and that's what we had suggested when we were using, you know, the maple syrup modifiers as a way to keep that, keep that trend going. So again, I, I still think, you know, cocktail needs a high proof um, rye, right. As a, as a base in more of the traditional or uh, original cocktail recipes. What do you think, I mean, for, for you, if you obviously, you know, running a, a well-respected brand are probably doing modeling all the time, forecasting, et cetera, to figure out what you think maybe is coming next. Have you started to think about what the future may hold? Like, do you, you know, see how you think the the business could change? Do you think you'll focus more on off-premise than you had in the past? Like if we were to say like one last question in terms of what your future planning looks like, um, what does that look like? I mean, obviously we've made the pivot to, to retail, right? And uh, and e-com, um, you know, we know on-premise will come back and of course we want to be there and support them as they do. And so, you know, whether it's quarter filled maple syrup containers or something else that keeps, you know, that ability to keep cocktails going, I think is important. And then, you know, you realize that the consumer, whether he's at home or um, slowly re-emerging, they still want innovation. I don't think that's ever going to change. So again, you know, we're still looking at this thing you know, the route to market may have changed or be slightly impacted and the recovery might be slow and it's not going to be V-shaped, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't still continue to create new ways to engage with our consumers and new products that are kind of pushing the boundaries of, of rye and whiskey in general. Um, I think the worst thing you can do is kind of, you know, stick your head in the sand and, and wait for things to be handed to you. So again, we, we encourage our people, you know, Take a look at what's happening. Is there new opportunities that are out there? How should we approach the markets and our consumers um, and take some risks, right? Uh, you know, I, I think, again, you just can't, you can't cover up. You just got to keep on striving. Interesting. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to chat with me today. It's been really interesting. I especially love the, the, um, the whiskey blending. It sounds super cool. I wish I would have gotten to take a part in it, but uh, <laughs> it's okay. Um, I'll definitely have to try to look for a bottle. No problem. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. And be well, and we'll keep looking out for Whistle Pig in the future. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. 
now for the credits. Primepair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Eric Adusi, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my Vinepair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vinepair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.